0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Dr. Gregory Stone, has lived underwater for 30 days and not on a submarine. He's an ocean scientist and an author who has spent a career studying and advocating on behalf of our oceans. He is now an executive vice president with Conservation International and is one of the world's leading authorities on ocean health and ocean conservation. We caught up just as a big UN conference on oceans was wrapping up in New York. This was the first ever UN conference on oceans, and we kick off discussing some of his takeaways from that meeting. And we, of course, discuss his life and career and where his love for the oceans all began. Jacques Cousteau has something to do with it. And we have some great digressions along the way about scuba diving in the Antarctic, the first time he saw the effects of climate change up close and personal, and why plastic is such a nemesis for our oceans. He will also, I promise, learn a lot about starfish. As you can imagine, Greg has some great stories to tell. And his career is also a good indication, a good example of how scientists can have a big impact on global affairs and global change. So stay tuned. So one quick note before we begin, I know a lot of you out there listening are in the early stages or your career, or even pre-career. Maybe you're a student, or maybe you're considering grad school, and I hear from you often that the stories of the people I interview are inspiring to you and make you want to pursue a career in global affairs in one way or another. And I know that because you email me all the time asking me advice on your career or what grad school you should go to or how you should think about picking grad school. I want to do more to try to help you answer those questions in a a more systematic way. So if... What I just described fits you. Send me an email. Uh, you can use the contact button on com and help me think through ways that I can use the podcast to help you in your career and in your uh, career goals. It's funny. When I started the podcast a few years ago, I really didn't expect so many younger professionals in foreign policy or students to gravitate towards the show, but I, I suppose it's the content that I produce is, is something that's meaningful and inspiring to you. So I'm I'm grateful to have you here and help you in whatever way I can. And I should say the quality of the audio of this conversation is not at a standard that you are accustomed to for a Global Dispatches podcast episode, but the content of it is great. All right, and now here is my conversation with Greg Stone. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: The UN just held the first ever Oceans Conference uh, in their history, actually. Oceans have always kind of been tucked in the sides of other other meetings, and it's one of the reasons this one was so important. and Really illustrated that the world, you know, has turned a corner on this issue. Finally, that's been something I've been looking for my whole my whole career. Uh, so it was a the whole UN was reserved for this. Uh, Peter Thompson, the president, uh, mm-hmm. was the driver, and he took, reserved the whole UN. So we had. he's, the, he's all,
0: Fijian, so it would be fitting that a Fijian president of the General Assembly would hold an oceans conference.
1: It's it's very it's very uh, it's very fitting. And Peter, uh, I know him. He's a friend of mine, and he um, is from Fiji, so he's from an ocean nation. And it's one of the reasons he he really got uh, behind us. It was a great meeting. I mean, we had you know delegates from every country in the world walking through the UN and going into this room and that room and stopping you, and saying, "Hey, what about this? Hey, what about that?" It was just a very wonderful confab uh, of diverse people, diverse issues. Although you know, triangulating back to the ocean. So So, I was, I I was very happy there.
0: (laughs) Now, was it mostly focused on like how to promote conservation of the ocean?
1: Well, you know, the whole ocean conservation movement has shifted recently to a, it's kind of back to us. It's about oceans and people and how can the oceans take care of people? And in, in order for the oceans to take care of people, we need to take care of it. So there is certainly a conservation component to it, but it's not the old, old school conservation, which was basically take a part of the earth, in this case, the ocean, and, you know, put it in a lockbox and not touch it. That's, that's old thinking now. Now we look at the ocean and ourselves and humanity as an integrated system, the two interacting and benefiting each other. So it's really about the oceans and people uh, living together in the modern world. And supporting each other.
0: So, did this conference lead to any like tangible outcomes? Tangible, um, you know, new commitments? Say for how people in the ocean would interact differently.
1: I wouldn't say there was any one thing you could point to uh, of any any issue of this sort of gravitas. It's so big that you're really looking for what I would call a tipping point where it gets to the place where. You know, the the creation of marine protected areas becomes uh, the norm and the uh, acceptance of aquaculture as a food source to the future uh, is accepted and everybody understands it now. And the idea that the ocean is the last place on the planet where we actually go catch wild animals and eat them on a massive scale. That's really kind of a strange thing when you stop and think about it. We we stopped doing that on land, you know, ten thousand years ago, uh, when we domesticated animals and started growing them ourselves and eating them in the ocean. We're still we're still out there catching wildlife and eating it, but we and we need it, but we've got to we've got to do it in a way that it can sustain. <clears throat> so now there wasn't one thing; it was really more. Uh, I would say, almost like we we entered uh, an awareness of. Uh, our ocean civilization. Let's put it that way, and the many facets that that represents.
0: So, was there like a moment that you could point to that kind of crystallized that that tipping point that 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 you just described?
1: You know, I go to a lot of meetings, and uh, there's certainly highlights. Uh, the, the we mentioned President Thompson a minute ago. His uh, his remarks and his guidance were were always uh, catalytic but no it, it's never it's not one thing it's really it's really a feeling that permeates the whole the whole meeting and the feeling is a feeling of optimism it's a feeling of energy it's a feeling of oh, i want to do i want to do more i want to do this next thing what are you doing and and this meeting had that and i would say in my experience that's you know rare usually meetings are are not as focused and not as disjointed and don't have the bounce this one had a real bounce and you can see it on the website, all the commitments. Uh, there's a, this started a few years ago where meetings um, started asking people and nations to make commitments at the meeting for the future. And then um, you come back and check in the future to make sure they did it. And then the way it was done at the UN is they opened up a website portal that any, any entity, whether it's a country or an individual person, could put up their, their aspiration, their goal. And I got over a thousand um, commitments, and when you look through those commitments, that to me tells a bit a really important story. You know that there's it's pretty balanced, by the way. You, you look at it; it's been mapped out on the globe. It's kind of a wiki. <laughs> it's almost like a wiki strategy, where no one uh, directed people to say certain things. Everybody said what they wanted to, but it, it came out pretty good.
0: And and some of these commitments, I mean, are, are from governments. They, you know, relate to things like banning plastic bags or, or microplastics, something, you know, very kind of tangible outcomes.
1: Yes. Yes. There were, uh, there was, there was a, a number of commitments related to plastic, countries that um, came to the realization that, you know, using a plastic product for anywhere from uh, two minutes to two hours and then throwing it away and losing track of it and having it exist in the, in the natural environment, and most of it's in the ocean for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, was a bad idea, and that we should, we should go backwards on that piece of technology and, and ban them and go back to, to uh, paper bags or uh, ask the customer to bring their own and not, not have this crazy system of dispersing this toxic material Uh, out there and just not having it go away you know we we come from uh humans come from uh we we all originally came from a tribal situation uh, probably in africa where we walked around and everything we ate and used we would just throw back on the ground and it would disintegrate and go back into the earth so after we started to transform almost everything we touched into new new substances we we started to create substances that don't go back to their elemental state very easily, and plastics one of it. It's what I call an un- unintended consequence. Who would have dreamed in two thousand in nineteen oh nine, plastic was invented? I mean, at the time, everybody said, "Wow, this, look, this is a great product. It's strong. It's durable. Let's use it for everything." And then a uh, hundred years later, we're, go, "Oh my God, what did we do? It's all around us, and it won't go away." <laughs> well, what's like the the weirdest
0: place that you've ever found plastics? I know you do a lot of diving. Like, where have you found plastic that you would not expect it to be?
1: I I was on a submarine uh, trip. Uh, it was well, trips is not the right word. A submarine dive in the early 90s in the Sea of Japan. And it was a deep diving sub. I was down at 18,000 feet. Uh, there was just three of us in a small sphere. And we were, we went down to look at a the submarine uh, earthquake that had occurred in the sea of Japan. And I hadn't expected to see trash or plastic. I was more interested in the geology and the animals that were there. But when I got to the bottom, it takes three hours to get there, by the way, in the submarine, uh, I saw plastic on the seafloor. And here's a place that hasn't seen the light of day in literally billions of years. And we arrive and there's plastic waiting for us. It really woke me up at that time. That was quite a while ago. But it was the beginning, really, of my my huh. entry into environmental science I was, hey, there's something wrong with this picture. Were, were you surprised to see plastic down there? Uh, yes and no. I mean, when I saw it, I kind of said, oh, yeah, this kind of makes sense, I guess, because ships go across here. And at that time, ships were throwing almost all their trash overboard and huh. and then rivers and all that. I could understand how it got there, but I it's one of those things where you don't expect to see it. <laughs> then when you see it, you go, "Oh, okay, <laughs> bad idea."
0: <laughs> um. So interesting. One, one, last point about that that uh, oceans conference. To me, what was kind of interesting about it is that it was um, convened under the umbrella of the Sustainable Development Goals. One of the Sustainable Development Goals, I think it's number fourteen, pertains to the oceans, and this conference seems to be the latest manifestation of uh, a growing UN strategy of convening. Uh, kind of issue specific meetings where you have governments and you have individuals and you have corporations and philanthropies and NGOs all kind of coming together around a very discrete issue and, um, bringing forward their own commitments to achieve that goal. It's not like a top down sort of conference, which I think distinguishes itself from how the UN used to operate when it comes to these kinds of Um, these, these kinds of international conferences about like a international development issues. So that was, it's kind of interesting to me, the way you describe, um, how the, the conference commitments worked.
1: Yeah, it was a, well, it it was actually, I would say it was both. It was a top down and a bottom up approach. The, the sustainable development goals is the most recent iteration of the UN, um, collectively coming up with a plan for the, the future. Uh, of living on the earth in a way that is that we want and it's not just by the way there's i think there's some 18 and maybe 19 sustainable development goals some of them are are, are, most of them are not related to the environment they're related to things like gender equity education and poverty things like that which are great but then there's increasingly more associated with the environment because everything else that we do on this planet ultimately depends on a healthy healthy environment so we we did come up with the Sustainable Development Goals in 2015 at the UN, and I would say that was a top-down approach. And then uh, that gave the guidance, that gave the direction, and then this meeting was convened, and, and then the bottom-up came uh, from the participants who, who looked at the guidance that had been given and, and then put forward their ideas on how to achieve it.
0: Um, so I'd love to switch gears and learn more about you and how you got into this line of work. Where, so where are you from? Where were you born?
1: I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, in the United States. And I've uh, heard of it,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've heard <laughs> of it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good place. <laughs> um, I didn't live near the ocean. I lived inland a little ways. And uh, What part of Boston? 19, uh, Walpole and Framingham mm-hmm. were the two towns that I kind of grew up in as a kid. I mean, we weren't far, but when you're that age and back in those days, you didn't actually get around that much. You'd sort of be in your hometown most of the time. And going even the 40, 50 miles to the coast was a big deal. It was almost like a summer trip. And so I was uh, lived in, in the woods, kind of. We lived in a rural area. And I didn't know or think much about the ocean until I started watching TV. And I saw Jacques Cousteau's documentaries which were quite popular at that time. And, man, did they, did they get me going. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing on there. These people putting on these strange suits, going underwater and seeing sharks and dolphins and shipwrecks. And then they would go live in underwater, uh, stations called habitats and they'd sit there and drink wine while they were down there. The Frenchmen, you know, it was quite a, quite an engaging series. And there was a couple other pieces on the TV that got my attention. One was called a uh, sea hunt and it was a 1960s program, kind of a, a crime solver, uh, format. And, but the, protagonist was a was a diver and everything happened under every 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 episode had an underwater theme to it so that's where i first got hooked uh, there was no other interest in my family i mean my, my parents and my sister didn't really know or care about the ocean but this really really got my attention and then i ended up going down to the coast uh when i was about 7 or 8 i think it was like the first time and i went to a cousin's place and we went to the he took me to the beach and we had, I remember, we had two flippers and two masks, so we each got a flipper <laughs> and a mask, <laughs> swam around in circles, <laughs> and uh, took me out. And I, you know, it was something about the just putting my head underwater and and with the mask, I saw the starfish. I mean, to this day, I can still remember the the colors and the. And then there was the bracing water; was cool. Something about the physicality of you know feeling it and looking at it just really lit me up and i remember I remember to this day driving home from there to their place inland, and all I could think about was the ocean in the car and uh from that point forward, there was nothing else I ever wanted to do but do something with the ocean i didn't know I didn't know what it would be till I was about sixteen. I knew it would be with the ocean either i I thought about being a fisherman, I thought about working on a cruise ship, I thought about being a commercial diver, and then I had a high school teacher that uh a biology teacher that taught me about marine invertebrates, and and then I was hooked. I love marine invertebrates. They're such a diverse, amazing group of animals. Do you have a favorite
0: marine invertebrate?
1: I certainly do. It's, without a doubt, it's the starfish. Mm-hmm. That well, that, um, that
0: first the first invertebrate that you saw.
1: Well, you know something, uh, Mark. That's the f- first time anybody's ever pointed that out. That connection. That probably does have something to do with it. i I've, I've rationalized my fascination with starfish. Because of their, their evolutionary history, they, they, they haven't changed in about 300 million years. And, and we are actually related to starfish. If you look at all the invertebrates in the ocean, the, the ones from which invertebrates, inver- you know, the animals with backbones came from, were the starfish. <laughs> so they're, in a strange way, they're our ancestor. But I, I just find their stability and their ancientness and everything quite quite intriguing.
0: Well, it's almost like it sounds like you do have like this rational appreciation for the starfish, but you seem to have like an emotional connection into it too, just the way in which the tone in which I can hear you describe it.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely have an emotional connection to, to my work, a passion. And, you know, that's what i found for, for most people makes the difference. If, if you have, if you have, if, well, two things, if you find something that is, you're passionate about, uh, that you like, you can't stop thinking about it, and you're able to find work or a path to work in that area. I guarantee you, you're going to do great. Um, well, so how did course,
0: you? So how did th- that work out for you? I mean, you you, you have this kind of. Um, spiritual moment with a starfish. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and then, you know, a, a few years later, you're thinking about starfish through like a more scientific and analytic lens. How do you put two and two together and realize that you can make a, a career studying these kinds of things and be living in the ocean like you wanted to?
1: Well, it's really, it was really, um, it was really a process. I mean, the other, the other direction, good direction in life is, is happiness. Happiness is a very good compass and um if you are able to uh, follow that compass and i did i just the ocean made me happy uh i love diving uh, i i just became very very addicted to to scuba diving once i learned and uh i just kept every opportunity that i had to go diving i would and then i when i took up marine science i combined the diving with marine science and was able to feel good when i was out diving and get work done and and that's a very uh, additive process because if you feel good and you're getting work done, you keep doing more work and you keep getting more done, and you you're able to find your way. So for me, it was uh, it was really driven from that point of view. And I, I mean, I enjoy science. Uh, for me, though, it was not so much the science as it was I, it was science was something I found I could do. That part of it was uh, was something I could do. It's, but it's really being near the ocean and under it and on it that that I really need and crave. I mean, I can't live. I've got to live where I can see the ocean and smell it. Ah. It's just the way I'm put together.
0: Where where, where, sitting, where, do you live now? Are you are you looking uh, at the ocean as we
1: speak? I am. Yeah, I'm, I live in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I have a, oh, I just moved from Hawaii about a year ago. But here in, in LA, I live in the northern part. I'm looking out the window from a, it's a condominium, but I've got good, good views of the ocean. I see Santa Monica and Malibu, and I can smell it. And I can hear the seagulls and and I can occasionally see dolphins jumping. So it's quite nice.
0: Uh, I guess I'm not as familiar with career paths for scientists and how science and and how that works. Did you want to just become like a scientist in Wisconsin university, doing your dives, collecting samples, doing your field research, writing papers? Is that kind of it for you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, you know, it was first the, the emotion, the emotional connections we were just talking about. And then, and then what happens in life is you meet people and you get mentors. And I was very lucky in that department. And I uh, I found a mentor when I was in college who was a scientist, a really amazing scientist. And when you meet someone like that and you get a front row seat for what they're like, uh, then you, you kind of want to be like them. So that was, a, that was a big influence on me. And, uh, you know, and I started to... Find what parts of science I was good at, and I was really good at field work, and I was good at writing, and uh, did a lot of exploration work. And I was lucky because in my in my day, uh, there wasn't really much done in the ocean space at all. You know, ocean oceanography is a modern discipline. I would argue was born in the fifties and sixties. I mean, when I started studying marine biology in the seventies, there wasn't even a textbook. We had to. I remember the professors put together reading packets of scientific papers that we would read. Today, there's, there's hundreds of textbooks out there. So um, I uh, went down that road and was able to uh, go out and study whales. Initially, I was a marine mammal scientist and studied whales and dolphins in the Gulf of Maine and the broader Atlantic. And then I ended up in Antarctica and the Pacific Ocean. And basically, anywhere I went, I could learn something new because no one had done it before. <laughs> it, was a, it was a some ways it was easy. In some ways, it was hard. It was it was easy. And when you got there, just about anything you saw and wrote about was new and was worthy of publication. Um, it was hard because no one had ever done it. So you had to kind of pioneer access and and uh, go to places where no one had ever been before.
0: Well, that, so, so there's like a technology that you have to probably um, invent along the way, I would imagine, right? Like, how do you get close to these environments that people haven't gotten close to before without disturbing them?
1: Uh, you know, it's funny, in the early days, I didn't really think about the not disturbing them part. It was, not, it was not really part of our consciousness back then. Today, as our population has swelled and exponentially grown, we worry about that a lot more and the technology was extant i mean other people had developed it the, the ships and the submarines and the cameras and the and the gear it was more uh ingenuity on on how to get to a new place like well antarctica for example i was invited down there by a by a, another scientist who became a mentor and uh this was in 87 i guess and no one was not many people were going down there then so you know you had to go to chile and somehow get yourself into a national science foundation program and on one of their ships that was the only way to get there and then when you get there it's like okay we're gonna go diving okay how do you go diving in water this cold so you sort of cobble together dive gear from winters in new england where i grew up and and a couple of other things and and try it out oh that was too cold that didn't work so you try something else and put a electric kidney warmer on your kidneys with a battery you drag around you know blood all your blood goes through your kidneys so if you put a if you put like a heater around your kidneys on this on your skin keep that area warm it helps keep your whole body warm and so things like that little pieces of technology but i was not a technologist in terms of development i was a technologist in terms of using it and I, mm-hmm. I really did, I really did enjoy submarines and dive gear and going well, underwater. But I didn't have to, I didn't develop it myself. What was that
0: first dive in Antarctica like? First of all, what was like the purpose of it? What
1: did you have like a scientific
0: mission you were trying to accomplish? But, but also just as like an experience of of diving in Antarctica, like ha- how how did you experience that?
1: Well, it was really cold. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I uh, would imagine. <laughs> you know, you can, you know, you can, you can. You, you get the right gear, you can pretty much put a, put a, a, a nice warm, uh, it's called a dry suit. It's called a dry suit. So there's no water inside. It's just, you wear, I actually wear long, long underwear and you know, your legs and your torso and stuff is, it's cool and it will get cold, but it's not like painful. But the area, one area I remember, you put your mask on and you have a hood, a nice warm hood, but it's around your mask. There's always going to be a little piece of skin showing your lips of course show. And that, Part I remember it was like, you know, you know how it is when you, when you were a kid and you ate an ice cream too fast and you get that ice cream headache. <laughs> well, this is like the worst ice cream headache in the world, you know, and I remember I would get in the water and well, the first thing you have to worry about is uh, regulators, the thing you breathe the air out of, they will freeze it very quickly down there. And sometimes they freeze open with this rushing air coming out of the tank and you got to avoid that. But if you, once you manage that, you put your head in the water, and then I would just sit there and moan for about – forty I would literally go, oh, <laughs> oh for, 40, for like 45 seconds, 30 seconds until your head went numb. And then that pain goes away. And then you go diving, and uh, your metabolism kicks into super high gear. You have to eat a lot of fat when you're down there. And you can last about 40 minutes. And then your toes start to really get cold and your fingers get really cold, and maybe there are some other places and you got to get out.
0: So, what what were you looking for? Like, what was your purpose of, of doing that other than like the masochistic purpose you just described?
1: <laughs> uh, we were studying Antarctic krill, and krill is a shrimp uh, like organism that lives in the Antarctic and forms the basis of the food chain down there. And uh, in particular, we were looking at a uh, what diseases naturally um naturally affect krill we were looking at uh pro you know protozoan uh, um, diseases uh something no one had ever looked at before and the way you do that is krill swarms in a school almost like fish in a funny way that so you get this swarm of shrimp going through the water and they're all oriented in the same direction and they turn in the same moment but if one guy was sick you could tell cuz he was like on his side a little bit or he wouldn't was couldn't quite keep up with the with the crew with everybody else and you'd go grab him in a net and then we'd a little like a, it was like a, a butterfly catching net used underwater and take him above and then you'd look at him dissect him and you'd find the infection and it was either inside his shell or in his body or in his eyes or something and you you'd isolate it and grow it and we'd say oh okay here's here's like a uh, a lethal disease that the get. And we were curious about what was killing the what, what krill what, what what kind of uh, diseases what kind of uh, health health are krill in naturally, and you can then use that to build up models of krill populations which fed the whales and fed the seals and and in some ways feed us some people do eat krill so it was basic research just studying natural diseases. Well, what did you find? Uh, we found uh, there were two or three different types of uh, uh, like protozoan type diseases i recall and uh i think we found uh you know some viruses and some bacteria and they were all new things that you know we wouldn't get them but they would they would infect the uh, the krill uh and we found you know the krill could one thing we found is really interesting the uh because we had we would also collect healthy krill and we would put them in these tanks that we had on the ship inside and we'd do all these experiments and we found uh I remember it was really fun. We, fa- we, we created what we called a Krill Accelerator. <laughs> it was, all it was was a board <laughs> with white on it. Yeah. And we found that if we put the board with white on it in the water, the krills would go really fast in the opposite direction. And it was a it was a, an avoidance mechanism for them. And the white represented like a whale lip or a, a predator. And if we put a – we tried different colors. And if we put just the black, no no effect uh, wood color, no effect white man. You could, this thing would send it into light speed. Um, so we, those were the days when I could study the ocean and anything, it's called basic research where you just like anything you can learn that you can learn with the tools of science. by the way, science is no more than a system of rules that keeps us from lying to each other. Okay. It's just a way that we tell stories that, um, we can be sure the story is truthful. That's all science is really, it's quite simple. A lot of people get scared off by the word science they think it's you don't need to know fortran and calculus uh differential calculus uh, there are there's a lot of science you can do with those skill sets but uh, basic science is just telling stories. So you go out into the world and you look at what's going on and you, you tell the story about what you saw using the tools of science so that someone else can come back and tell the same story and verify that you were correct. So, so uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, yeah, go ahead. Well,
0: so, so you said the first time you're in the Antarctica was, was 87. What was the most recent, your, your most recent trip to, to Antarctica? Uh,
1: my most recent trip there was about 15 years ago.
0: And how different was the environment at that point? I mean, 87, as, as a scientist, as someone who studies these issues, you were probably already, of course, clued into climate change. It was not as much part of the vernacular back then, um, for, for lay people. But, uh, were you seeing back then any uh, effects of, of climate change that you could identify? And like, how different was the environment from 87 to the, to your most recent trip?
1: Well, actually, we didn't, no, we didn't know about climate change back then. That even as a scientist
0: in 1987, it wasn't something that you were kind of clued in on?
1: Not something that I was clued in. I was a young scientist. I mean, it was before graduate school and everything. I mean, I think probably in, a, in the esoteric world, and in, there were people thinking about it, but, but I know from the literature that even those that were thinking about it had no idea that it would become such a, such a big deal, such a, such a bad thing. So, no, we weren't thinking about it at all. We were uh, on my trip. Mm -hmm. But going back, the biggest change that I noticed uh, over the years was the uh, increase in access. Because now you've got tour boats down there. You've got fishing boats down there. You even have people, some people sail their own private little sailboats down there. In the early days, it was very, very difficult to get there, and no one was there. Uh, Now it's gotten quite almost urbanized
0: um was there is there a moment you could point to in your in your career in your past where you realized that you know climate change was was a thing if, if as a young scientist in 87 it wasn't something you're clued in on like was there a moment that you could point to as as when you realize that this is going to be something perhaps um foundational to 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 your life's work
1: uh absolutely uh i started studying um Some coral, remote coral reef systems in the central Pacific on some islands that no one lived on, like 800 miles from anybody, really remote places. And when I first went there, it was like the Garden of Eden. These reefs were like no reefs I'd ever seen or dreamed could exist. They were so abundant and pure. And then I went back a couple of years later, and there had been a severe heating of the ocean in that area from climate change. And the reefs had uh, suffered a 90% uh, mortality, 90% of the reefs were dead. And here it was, this remote place, right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on the equator, thousand, you know, 800,000 miles from from the closest port, and m- many thousands of miles from large population centers, yet it was feeling the effect of these population centers burning all this fossil fuel and heating the planet up. I mean, it really showed me how small the planet was, for one thing, and then it showed me that uh, climate change was happening in a very real way. Before, Up until then, it was kind of an academic notion for me. I'd read about it, and I believed it, and I knew it was happening, but I hadn't, I didn't see it, didn't see the, the emo- it was, again, back to emotions. You know, you get underwater, and everything's dead, and at a place that had been the most alive place you'd ever seen in your life. I mean, it was quite a it was quite sad, actually. I remember on the, the day that we all got back there and saw that, everybody on the boat was depressed. Um, and that's when uh, that's when I really started to turn my attention to it. And I've been doing quite a bit of work on it since. So uh, when, when was that? Like what so that year? That was in uh, 2002.
0: And up to that point, were you mostly sort of affiliated with universities and research centers?
1: Yes. Yes, exactly.
0: Um, and and sort of did that um moment like looking at that 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 coral reef in which you know you became upset and and saddened and 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 depressed by it what um like what what changed in you in terms of how you might pursue the rest of your career?
1: well, up until that time, well, after I saw the plastic on the seafloor about ten years before that mm-hmm. i I turned my attention to conservation, but I was mostly working in uh, fisheries, you know, not trying to figure out how to not, not to take so much fish out of the ocean and, and let codfish in the North Atlantic and tuna uh, populations uh, survive and also pollution, you know, cut down on putting things, you know, we tend to take too much out of the ocean of things we want and we put too, th- too much back into the ocean of things that we don't want. So I was kind of working on that equation, trying to not make it the garbage bucket that it had become. And then when I saw the climate insult coming in like it did so strongly, it kind of added to my work, but it didn't replace it. It just was, became a—one became, you you, way to think about the ocean is like a—think think of it like a patient. And uh, think of it like a relative, too, someone who's really important to you, because the ocean should be important to you because it, it provides so much for your life. And everything that happens to it is like a different disease. So overfishing is a disease— putting too much plastic and oil and and, uh, petroleum in the ocean is another disease and climate change is yet another one. So it's like having all these different syndromes and turns out the ocean is, uh, is, is is resilient. That's one thing I've learned about it. It's a, it's always teaching me things and it's very resilient. And if you can isolate just one disease, it can, it can do a pretty good job of managing that one disease through what you might call its immune system. But when you, start to insult it with two or three serious diseases, it can't handle it. Just like a person. If a person gets you know three or four serious diseases, they're probably going to die. But if they have one, you know, maybe their immune system will rise up and conquer it or, or modern medicine will help. But uh, once there's too many, you know, it's over.
0: So using that analogy, is there a, you know, a disease that you have seen in your career the, the ocean sort of recover from?
1: Yes. Yes. Well, I uh, back to that ble- that bleach. The, uh, you, it's called bleaching, coral bleaching, when the when the reefs die from heating. Uh, it's a bit of a misnomer because it's not really bleach. It just the coral. Coral gets its color. Coral is an animal. It looks like a rock, but it's an animal that has uh, tentacles that come out and grab food. And but it also has this uh, ability to harbor uh, uh, algae. Plant material, single cell plants in it, called zooxanthellae, and, and the, these plants grow in this gooey mucus cover the coral has. And as the plants convert sunlight into sugar, the coral actually absorbs the sugar directly out of the plant. It's kind of cool. Uh, so when the when it gets too hot, it's the zooxanthellae that dies initially. The, the plant, the plant, single cell plant material can't handle the heat. And the coral will live for a while because it can still grab a little bit of food out of the water, but it, it's grown to rely on that sugar. And then when, it, when, the, uh, when the algae dies, uh, there's no more color, so the coral turns its natural white. It's still alive for a while, but it's white. And we call it coral bleaching because it looks white. But that reef that I saw that it was so severely bleached, and, and then it died, Uh, What happened there was we had isolated all the other insults. There was no overfishing going on in these reefs. There was nobody living there, so there was no pollution or runoff. So the only thing the reef had to deal with was this heating that we were causing, this high-temperature ocean water. And it recovered because uh, it was just dealing with one disease. Uh, If it had had several other insults, and I've seen this elsewhere in the world, like in the Caribbean and Jamaica, there was some severe bleaching down there, but there was also a lot of overfishing. There was a lot of uh, ships coming through, dragging their anchors around. There was a resort on the water on the coastline that was putting pollution in the water. That reef has never come back because there's just too much. Can't handle it. It's gone.
0: Um, how are we doing like, like overall in terms of, of the trajectory of the oceans? I mean, are we, you know, you're coming on the heels of this ocean conference and you said there's a bounce to it. Uh, but, is the general trajectory uh, of all these kind of pathologies that you described one in which, like, the patient's going to die or, or might we yet survive?
1: Well, that's a very good question. Uh, the way I would characterize it is we've been trending downwards. The health of the ocean has been trending downwards since, I would say, around the 1950s or 60s. And it was in it was in a very steep, sharp, rapid decline in the latter part of the 19th century, uh, or the 20th century. Sorry, 70s, 80s, 90s, and it's still going down, unfortunately. But I I think the speed at which it's going down is slowed, right? So it's like a imagine a plane going into a nosedive. We were basically headed straight for the for the for the tarmac fast and Because of the remedial measures, because of awareness, because of countries starting to take actions, because of companies and the private sector starting to take actions, you know, beginning to not take so much fish and create protected areas and not put as much plastic in the water, we've we've basically started to come out of the nosedive a little bit. (laughs) But we're still headed down. (laughs) So we we have to keep up what we're doing. We have to redouble our efforts and get this plane level and then get it to start climbing. And restoring the, the, the planet, so we're still we're still in a bad way, but I'm optimistic by nature. And and what I see are, are changes. You know, I'm seeing some turnaround in places like Costa Rica. The Costa Rican government has been pretty good about fishery management, creating protected areas, and we're seeing the biomass. You know, the, the numbers of animals, abundance increasing down there. Uh, and this, the central some areas in the Central Pacific where I work. Countries have made really aggressive big protected areas, and I'm seeing that effect. Uh, but globally, the Earth is still uh, has a still still sick. You know, and to to go back to the medical analogy, uh, it actually tracks pretty carefully. You know, a sick person has a temperature, right? <laughs> well, the ocean gets hot, <laughs> it gets a temperature, and it makes it sick. And when a person is sick, their blood chemistry can be bad and we're actually making the oceans more acidic we're changing the chemistry of the ocean just like a sick patient might have a a change in their blood chemistry and if a person is injured you know they fall and break their leg or whatever there's physical damage that happens to them and we're physically harming the ocean as well so once we start to to really pull back on all these these insults uh the ocean will come back you know it'll never it'll probably never be like it was and that's something that you grow to accept. But what we're shooting for at this stage is for the ocean to stabilize. We want the patient to stabilize and begin to get a bit better. By, by saying it's never going to be like it was, what, I'm, what I mean by that is you know, we now dominate this planet. Humans dominate this planet. There's 7 plus billion of us now. There's soon going to be 9 billion. And if you look at a map of the population of humans on the planet, we are everywhere in big numbers and it's now become a human planet. And the future, forevermore, will be a planet dominated by a wonderful global ocean that keeps it a nice place to live, with humans now part of that system. Uh, we're never going to go back to a, an ocean where we were a minor, minor species on the corner of one continent. You know, We are now the, the major, we're the determinant of the future of this planet. And the future of this planet depends on the future of its ocean. Uh,
0: can I ask when there was was there a moment in your career in which you sort of proactively decided to become a, an advocate for the oceans as opposed to someone just doing kind of scientific research? And how did that transition occur? I mean, I, I know you're're you're, you're like a very public figure. you've written many books, you're on TV a lot. How did that transition happen?
1: Well, you know, there was never a moment where I made a decision to do that. i There were moments where I saw actions that I could take or that I could encourage someone else to take to solve a particular problem. And I always took them when I saw when I saw a way forward, I took it. Uh, so it was uh, it was really a, a function of uh, living, working, and making decisions along the way. I, I, I must admit, I never had a, a long life uh, strategy for my work or my life. I basically did what I thought was the right thing as I encountered uh, things as I went along. Uh, you know, I I, I didn't ever expected to be a marine conservationist uh, when I started. I liked diving and I enjoyed exploration and I enjoyed writing about it and telling people about it. But then when I started to see problems in the ocean, I said, oh. Well there's kind of a what I call as a consequence of knowing <laughs> once you know something there's a consequence of that knowledge and the consequence is you have to do something about it and I think a lot of people are driven that way whether they learn about child hunger or gender inequality or something that's not right with this world once you know about it there's a there's a responsibility to do something about it so I started doing something about it as I could uh, and uh, now I'm working. Uh, for conservation international, we have a global program all around the world. I do quite a bit with the world economic forum. And now I, now I do sort of have developed big global strategies that are not based on a reaction. They're based on, okay, this is what we know. This is what we, where we want to get to how are we going to do it.
0: So, so I read in your bio that you spent 30 days underwater is that yeah. right? So how how yep. was that part of the uh, part of doing something about it, as you just said? What, what how did that contribute to, uh, to to your your sort of desire to to spend thirty days underwater?
1: Well, and also, how does one actually and...
0: spend thirty days underwater? This is
1: inconceivable uh-huh. to me. <laughs> well, it was living in a, in a in, in an underwater. They're called underwater habitats, and they're back to what I mentioned. I saw as a kid when Cousteau and his team were living underwater. And it's based on a very simple principle. If you take a, if you take a glass a, 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 and you have a bucket of water and you hold the glass upside down and push it to the bottom of the bucket of water, there will be an air pocket in the glass. And if you raise the glass off the bottom just a little bit, and if you can swim in there, you swim into the glass and up, you can get into that air pocket. And that's how, that's how an underwater habitat works. It's basically a, a structure underwater this got some pressure inside it so it keeps the water from coming in and you enter the habitat through the floor because that's where the 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 water interface is it's called a moon pool so you swim under the habitat you pop up into it and because you're down uh, in my case the habitat was the aquarius habitat we were they call it the hatch depth which is the depth of the moon pool which is the hatch this water interface that was at about 70 feet so inside the air is compressed you need high, you need air pressure to keep the water out. So you're, you actually walk up, you come up and do an air pocket and it's high pressure and you live in there and your body becomes saturated with gases at that depth. Uh, it's got to do with something called the, the, uh, the bends and uh, the absorption of nitrogen in your system. You have to live down there. You can go out, swim around the ocean all day long. And you have to come back inside the habitat when you want to have a rest or a meal and you can go back out again. But you can't go to the surface rapidly because you'll die because the gases that are in solution have now been absorbed in all your tissues and they will come out as bubbles. And uh, it would be like suddenly your blood would become like Coca-Cola and it would kill you. The only way to come back after you've been down there for a while is to decompress slowly. It takes about 24 hours of decompression to uh, get the gas bubbles to uh, come out safely. And where world so is this? Like where? What, what ocean? The Aquarius habitat is uh, Florida Keys, and uh, I've been when when we say 30 days, I was in it three different times for 10 days. So mm-hmm. you add them up, it's 30 days, uh, and it's uh, it's about seven miles off off of Key Largo currently, and you go out seven miles and there's a buoy and and you dive down and there's this wonderful thing about the size of a school bus that six people can live in, and you conduct research on the reef. When I first went at it was in St. Croix. It was in the Caribbean, but there was a hurricane and had to move it. But that's really the only underwater uh, research station in the world. Uh, very unusual. We had a lot more of them back in the 60s and 70s, but the, the world... Uh, it's interesting that back then there were two areas that the global community was looking at. We were looking at space, famous Kennedy decade, 1960s, where we went to the moon and back, and Space stations and all that. And we were also looking down into the ocean. There were visions of underwater cities and living underwater back in those days. But the world kind of retreated from that area and put everything we had into space. And now I would say we're in what I call an ocean renaissance. We're sort of coming back to the ocean and uh, finally doing what we probably should have done uh, 50 years ago.
0: Um, well, I hope we don't habitat, don't have cities in water. That sounds like they're under ocean. That seems like it might be, uh, might not be good for the for the oceans itself. Considering how we treat our own cities.
1: Well, as long as we learn our lessons uh, from the past, and that's really what that my new book is about, uh, Soul of the Sea and the Age of the Algorithm. It's really looking to the future and technology, and but it, importantly, the first half of the book is about the past and what we did. And the unintended consequences of what we did. For example, I already talked about plastic, but you could talk about um, fishing, whaling. You know, back in the day, we went out and thought that the abundance of whales and fish would never end. So we just kept taking as many out of the water as we could. And, and we had catastrophic impacts everywhere. So you sort of look at that and then you look at the future and you say, okay, well, here's a new idea in the future underwater cities, to your point. Let's make sure these underwater cities are going to be okay for the ocean. Let's adopt, for example, the uh, Iroquois Indians have a rule in their society where any decision that they make, the Native American Indian tribe, has to be good for seven generations to come. So, for example, they would not, if a logging company came to their land and said, we're going to give you $10 million to call your trees down, what do you say? They might say, oh, that'd be good for us. But seven generations from now, it's not going to be good because the trees will be gone. So they wouldn't do it. Uh, we need to begin to project our actions into the future and make sure that they're going to be okay down around the corner. And I think we have, we have the ability to do that now. We didn't before. So those underwater cities could be, they could actually be made to make the ocean healthier. The cities could be made of uh, material that could absorb uh, carbon dioxide from the water. They could be made with special uh, areas that fish like so that you can create new fish habitat and the fish can can thrive around the city. Um, there's ways you can do it. Um, and you said the book is coming
0: out soon, right? It's coming out in October. I, I saw
1: that's right. Yep. <clears throat> Excellent. It'll be, it'll be widely available in October. It's actually, uh, it's actually, it's actually done. We, we got the special printing done for the UN meeting, but it won't, it takes a while to get it into the, into the bookstores and whatnot. So it can be, pre-ordered on amazon or any online uh, place but right. yeah it's, it's on its way
0: yeah i'll, I'll post the link well thank you thank you so much greg this was interesting and helpful and you know kind of a, a part of uh, a, a part of global affairs that i don't often sort of study or engage with so this is really helpful to me personally so thank you
1: sure sure absolutely
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Greg. And again, sorry about the uh, audio quality of this. It's rare that these things happen, but these things do happen sometimes. Um, Huge. Thank you to everyone who's been leaving reviews on iTunes. I so appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It helps other people discover the podcast. When you leave a review on iTunes, I've added two episodes to the premium bonus channel. Uh, the first episode is how to get a job at the United Nations. It's an interview I conducted a little while back with a longtime UN staffer who walks me through the process of applying and landing a job at the UN. The other conversation is uh, exploration of how to pick the right graduate school in international relations. I speak to the dean at Georgetown Also to current or prospective students as well to talk through their decision-making around picking the right grad school. Those are available as premium episodes for people who are interested in in using the podcast to advance their career somehow. Go become a premium member. Uh, Thank you. I really appreciate it. And as always, let me know if there's anything I can do for you. See you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.